0: Hello, and welcome to this news conference sponsored by NIRS, the Nuclear Information and Research Service. You can be hearing from four speakers today, and before we introduce them individually, I'm going to bring on the operator to explain how the Q&A period will work following the opening statements. Operator?
1: During the question and answer session, you may ask a question by pressing star then one on your touchtone phone. If you would like to remove yourself from the queue, you may press star then two Again, it's star than one to ask a question.
0: Thank you, operator. And we will repeat those instructions about how members of the news media can pose questions at the beginning of the Q&A period. So as I said, you're going to be hearing from four speakers today. They are Peter Bradford. He's a former Nuclear Regulatory Commission, NRC, uh, commissioner. He's past chair of the New York and Maine State Utility Regulatory Commissions. Uh, second, Dr. Mark Cooper, Senior Fellow for Economic Analysis. Institute for Energy and the Environment at Vermont Law School. Third is Ryan Alexander. She is President of Taxpayers for Common Sense. And fourth is Tim Judson, Executive Director at NIRS Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Uh, Let's begin with our first speaker, Peter Bradford, former NRC Commissioner, past Chair of the New York and Maine State Utility Regulatory Commissions. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, Thanks, Max. I'm going to lay out five
2: lessons that are clear in, in the wake of the summer cancellation announcements. The first is that uh, though much has been written lately suggesting that the summer units and Votel in Georgia are somehow central to a revival or a renaissance of nuclear power in the U.S. This is wrong. Uh, the intent of the nuclear renaissance, as the term was first used 10 or 15 years ago, was to show that new reactor designs and an expedited licensing process from which the public was largely excluded would produce reactors that could be completed on time and on budget as well as at competitive cost. The expectation was that private financing without subsidy from customers and taxpayers would then become available to nuclear power. But that dream has been in ruins for at least six or seven years now. None of the 31 applications that were pending at the NRC for new reactors as of early 2009 have been completed. Almost all of them have been canceled. Summer and Vodal are not the remnants of a renaissance. They are living proof that the renaissance was a well-funded delusion. They prove that for all the favors granted to new nuclear and federal and state legislation a decade ago, it remains unable to forecast and control its costs and schedules. And most importantly, even even if it could meet its forecasts, it would still be uncompetitive with other electricity resources, including other low-carbon electricity resources, by wide margins. Proponents of the Renaissance never understood the dynamics of the competitive markets and technology revolutions that have characterized the electric industry in this century. The size and scope of their mistakes were clear even before the Fukushima accident in 2011. The Westinghouse bankruptcy and subsequent events in South Carolina make the lessons so clear that even the most ardent nuclear propagandists probably can no longer shut them down. A second lesson is that the climate change tragedy here is not the cancellation of two uneconomic nuclear units, a cancellation in any case not brought on by environmental opposition. It is that these units were allowed for a decade to stultify wiser energy planning for South Carolina. If cheaper resources had been chosen 10 years ago, many of them would be up and running today, saving both jobs and environmental harms. Indeed, because the summer units could not in any case have been completed for many more years, the South Carolina PUC can immediately embark upon a wiser resource selection process. This will be at least as important as the inevitable debates over who should pay for the summer units. A third lesson from the South Carolina cancellations, as well as Levy County in Florida, and the cost overruns at Vodal in Georgia is that so-called early cost recovery laws, that is, laws and regulatory decisions placing economic risks on customers instead of on the investors and lenders who should properly bear them, are a disastrous mistake. Freed of responsibility for the consequences of their mistakes, utility executives too often plunge into ill-advised schemes to pad their rate bases and their individual compensation when they should be managing competitive processes designed to select the most cost-effective and prudent combinations of technologies, including energy efficiency, to serve their customers. A fourth lesson is that the promise of new nuclear power, that its high cost in the early years will somehow be paid off by savings in later decades, cannot be trusted either. First, the cost of the canceled plants will not be redeemed later on. And as Tim Judson will discuss later, The later years for many plants are bringing, in fact, not the long-promised savings, but new demands for multi-billion-dollar rate increases to keep these older plants operating in what were supposed to be their most beneficial years. A final lesson is that even the most vocal political support does not help nuclear power much. This was shown once in the 1980s when President Reagan's election and strong endorsements were followed by a wave of plant cancellations and cost overruns much greater than any that had been seen before. It's now been shown again in the wave of cancellations in the 21st century, despite the strong vocal and economic support shown to nuclear power by both political parties. That concludes my opening statement.
0: Thank you, Peter. Again, that was former NRC Commissioner Peter Bradford. So let's proceed to our second speaker, Dr. Mark Cooper, Senior Fellow for Economic Analysis at the Institute for Energy and the Environment at Vermont Law School.
3: Mark? Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, each time we have one of these meetings, we mark another milestone um, in what has been a really unnecessarily expensive um, a uh, process of laying nuclear power to rest. If Vogel is completed, it will not be a monument to the nuclear renaissance. It will be a mausoleum to inter nuclear power in America once and for all. As Peter suggested, policymakers never should have offered the incentive of advanced cost recovery. Prudent utility management should not have uh, accepted the incentives. It was a bad investment even under those terms and regulators should have done a better job at overseeing the way costs were incurred. Five years ago in South Carolina, I showed that um, consumers would be better off, ratepayers would be better off if the plant were canceled. That was about $2.9 billion in. We're now $4.9 billion in, and the same holds. Ratepayers are better off now that they have uh, canceled the reactor. Um, uh, I believe the same is true of Vogel. We're starting to see these just horrific cost estimates. Um, I believe a two-go analysis would show that even with those large numbers, uh, ratepayers in Georgia would be better off if they abandoned. And let me make it clear. The fascinating thing is Toshiba keeps offering contributions to help the utilities move forward. In the case of summer, it was a contribution, no questions asked. If they abandon, they get it. If they continue, they get it. In Georgia, uh, I think it was a construction support. But let's be clear, the reason Toshiba is making these contributions is because they have a contractual legal obligation that they are afraid will consume them. So they will make those contributions inside the bankruptcy proceedings, and ratepayers could get those benefits without having to incur further costs. One final point, and it's quite clear in both of these cases, There was a moment over a year ago when Toshiba Westinghouse could not produce a credible plan to construct these reactors, a budget that made sense or time for finishing. At that point, it was imprudent for any cost to be incurred by the utilities. There's a clawback possibility here of substantial billions of dollars. So if the regulators and policymakers in Georgia, many of whom are now saying, boy, we made a mistake, do their job even under the existing laws, they can alleviate a tremendous amount of the burden, billions and billions of dollars that will weigh down ratepayers, will weigh down their their state economies, and of course they can use those monies to build lower cost, cleaner, carbon free alternatives. Let's be clear. You'll hear about. Nuclear is, is the future for low carbon. No, nuclear is the worst way to go about reducing carbon. That's what I said in North Carolina, South Carolina. That's what I've been saying since the first days I got involved in this in Florida. There are lower cost, less risky, more consumer-friendly ways to reduce carbon emissions and keep the lights on without having massive amounts of excess capacity. So we've come to the final moment. Hopefully the folks in Georgia will see the handwriting on the wall rather than wait till they're inside the mausoleum and paying the price. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Again, that was Dr. Mark Cooper, Senior
0: Fellow for Economic Analysis for the Institute for Energy and the Environment at Vermont Law School. That takes us to our third speaker, Ryan Alexander, President for Taxpayers for Common Sense. Ryan?
4: Good afternoon. Taxpayers for Common Sense is a national, nonpartisan budget watchdog organization. For more than 20 years, Taxpayers has tracked and opposed wasteful cradle-to-grave subsidies on all energy sources from oil, gas, coal, and nuclear to wind and solar. Whether it is direct grants and spending, loans and loan guarantees, tax expenditures or insurance, the energy sector has received numerous taxpayer-backed supports for more than a century. These subsidies distort energy markets and place undue financial burden on federal taxpayers. When it comes to nuclear power, taxpayer subsidies run deep, from loan guarantees for construction to production tax credits during operation to cleanup and waste disposal to accident liabilities. Taxpayers pick up the tap. This this week we learned of the abandonment of the construction of the two nuclear reactors in South Carolina, citing cost overruns and technological challenges. The VC Summers abandonment you know, is just an indication of where they were. The project had already sunk $9 billion in state ratepayer funds and was less than 50% complete. Thankfully for federal taxpayers, this project had failed in securing a federally backed loan guarantee. Taxpayers were on the hook for the project to receive a nuclear production tax credit of $2.2 billion once the project was completed. As with all other reactors, taxpayers would also have been on the hook for the accident insurance through the Price Anderson Act. What's most telling about the Summers project for taxpayers is that the project relied on the same problematic reactor designs and contractors, the recently bankrupt Westinghouse Corporation, as a southern company's plant Vogel. Uh, Westinghouse AP1000 design was being used in both Summers and Vogel. Both projects have experienced multiple delays and significant cost overruns. Westinghouse's recent bankruptcy pushed both projects further into turmoil. Unlike Summers, Vogel managed to win themselves more than $8 billion in taxpayer-backed loan guarantees. So while federal taxpayers should and must watch any efforts to contribute to the bailout of the state of South Carolina and the players involved in the Summers project, billions in tax dollars are already at risk with the Vogel project. It seems clearer than ever that the writing is on the wall for taxpayers. We've set it for eight years. These massive nuclear reactor projects were doomed from the start, and taxpayer money should not be risked on them. Thanks.
0: Thank you. That was Ryan Alexander, President, of Taxpayers for Common Sense. Our fourth and final speaker is Tim Judson, Executive Director at Nuclear Information and Resource Service.
5: Tim. Uh, hi, my name is Tim Judson, and I'm the director at NIRS or the Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Uh, we're a national nonprofit organization and environmental watchdog uh, that's focused on issues of nuclear power and radioactive waste since 1978. Uh, you know, it should be made clear that the Summer Nuclear Project has not failed for lack of government and financial support, but despite an, an immense amount of it. Um, in fact, as a 2011 report by the Union of Concerned Scientists showed, the subsidies for nuclear power have often been greater than the value of the power that reactors have generated. The subsidies that, that, uh, that Summer and Vogel have been eligible for include up to $25 billion in uh, both taxpayer-guaranteed loans and federal tax credits, as Ryan described. Um, But there are also massive indirect subsidies in the form of uh, both uh, nuclear disaster insurance and management of nuclear waste. Um, The industry for the last three years, for instance, has even been exempted from paying the nominal fees to the high-level waste fund uh, due to a court judgment uh, against against the Department of Energy. But it should be clear that canceling the summer reactors proves that the nuclear industry has no future, but it only tells half the story. Nuclear generators are pushing for billions of dollars in subsidies and bailouts for their aging reactors at both the state and federal level, although those efforts are mostly failing as well. Last year, New York and Illinois approved subsidies for aging reactors uh, that are projected to cost $10 billion over the next 12 years. However, the hoped-for momentum from the New York and Illinois bailouts did not materialize this year, with state legislatures rejecting nuclear subsidy bills in state after state. Such bills failed in Connecticut and Ohio despite vigorous utility lobbying and promised bills never materialized in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. The controversy and price tags associated with subsidizing aging reactors are proving a hard sell in state capitals. As a result, the industry is turning increasingly to Washington for assistance. The Trump administration uh, has signaled support for the industry, and a pending report from the Department of Energy uh, is expected to endorse support for preserving both nuclear and coal generation as a national security priority. In a report New published last fall, we found the cost of such a national program to be enormous, uh, between $150 and $280 billion for nuclear alone. Uh, based on the Trump administration's recent statements, we expect a nuclear subsidy program could total $230 billion by 2030, again, for nuclear alone, not including what subsidies to coal might cost. This would be a wasteful allocation of federal tax dollars. With renewable energy now surpassing nuclear by widening margins, and solar and wind employing more than twice as many people as nuclear and coal combined, it's clear that the best use of public resources is to encourage the growth of clean, safe, affordable, job-creating renewable energy sources. That'll conclude my remarks.
0: Thank you, Tim. Again, that was Tim Judson, Executive Director at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NIRS. And that takes us to the Q&A portion of the call. We want to emphasize that the Q&A period is only for reporters and media. We're going to bring the operator back on the line to explain again how members of the media can ask a question. Operator?
1: At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown phone. If you decide to withdraw your question, please press star then 2 to remove yourself from the list. Please limit yourself to one question and a single follow-up. If you need to ask additional questions, please know that you may press star then 1 to rejoin the queue.
0: Great. Thank you. And uh, while we're waiting for the uh, questions to queue up, we want to make sure you know how to connect with the speakers you're hearing from today following this call. You can contact Max Carlin at 703-276-3255. Again, that's 703-276-3255. And as well, the report and a streaming audio replay of the news event will be available online later today. It'll be at nirs.org, that's N-I-R-S dot O-R-G. And we'll also have that uh, direct link available. It's on the news advisory, in fact, but um, it'll be on the news release as well. Uh, So let's see. Uh, Operator, why don't we go to our first question?
1: And that question comes from Tom Henry with Toledo Blade. Please go ahead.
6: Yeah, in your – I know – you're focused primarily on economics, but in looking at the failures here, to what degree, if any, do you know if technical issues may have may have been involved here? Was it was it purely the economics of? In other words, was there anything about the science of these particular plants, or or was it all confined to the economics of trying to build them?
3: This is Mark Cooper. I've actually directly addressed that in, you know, sort of numerous, lengthy looks at at nuclear history. And as I I argue that the failure of nuclear power is inevitable. It is inevitable because uh, of the catastrophic risk of the power source. So you have this incredibly risky source that you need to wrap with incredibly complex technology to make it safe or what you think is safe. And you keep learning, Mother Nature being what, what she is and technology being what it is, you keep learning that it wasn't quite as safe as you thought it is. And so you wrap more and more technology around it, right? You keep trying. They've been trying. Um, and so what happens is that uh, the, the, the iron law of nuclear economics is simple. Any society that believes it can build a safe, nuclear reactor by mobilizing massive technology and economic resources will almost certainly be able to meet their need for electricity with much less risky technology and much lower levels of resources. And so it's this constant process of, well, nuclears may compete with coal or gas in the 1980s. Well, it couldn't quite compete. And then it comes back and says, well, now we can compete with something, and wind and solar have just clobbered coal, and they're fixing to clobber gas. So there's a technological problem. So you you say the economics and the technology are intricately interwoven through the challenge of producing a safe reactor. Tom, this is Peter Bradford. Just to to, uh, make what
2: Mark has quite correctly said clear in the context of these plants, The uh, Westinghouse AP-1000 design, Mm -hmm. they thought they had it final and ready for NRC approval um, uh, in the, what, 2005-2006 timeframe, and then realized that if they were going to meet a new NRC requirement with regard to potential plane crashes, maybe some others as well, coming not out of Fukushima, which hadn't happened yet, but out of the uh, events of September 11, 2001, uh, they were going to have to revise the design. And so they lost two or three years in having what I think was called the 11th Amendment to what was supposed to have been the final design approved by the NRC. And that, in turn, pushed back the uh, starting date for most of the AP-1000 plans and began the process. The interplay between delay and increased costs in the nuclear industry is just inevitable because so much money gets committed so early that interest costs uh, really punish delays. And that was one of the factors here. Well, the had reason been, yeah. had some other specific uh, issues, and Summer may have also, but Vodal certainly did. Yeah, and
6: very simply the reason i ask is, as you might imagine there's there's um been over 50 years of of performance and there's obviously concern and controversy has it been um as good as it could have been uh with the uh with the existing fleet but if you know if people come to you and say um the science is there we just haven't figured out the economics and i uh, i appreciate what mark says about you know the uh, the technology and the economics being interwoven and this is a different era this is a different time there's there's new tech uh... you know newer technology as well as concerns such as you, you know crashing a um... a jetliner into a reactor that that worked fathom back when reactors were were being built uh, many years ago and um, i'm just I threw that out there, you know, if, if money was never an object, and it always is, of course, uh, is, is the science, you know, still as sound as it used to be?
3: Well, the science is, you know, the science may be fine, and the engineering is not. That's the point.
6: Mm-hmm. If you look at
3: Vogel, they couldn't dig the hole without getting into a dispute with the NRC about, about backfill. They had this big debate about, you, you know, they didn't have enough high-quality backfill, which is you put back in to secure the walls. So they had a dispute, and they said, well, leave us be, we'll, we'll do it. And so they poured the mud mat, and it wasn't level, precisely because the, the quality of the earth wasn't quite right. And then and the NRC would have normally said, well, you've got to dig it up and pour it again. They said, no, let, let us pour another uh, layer over it. And then, of course, it was two pieces of concrete, not one. They put the, 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 the rebars in, and they didn't meet the standard, right? So now the NRC has to send regulators to look at the, at the production process. So they have been unable to deal with this, the basic engineering of a safe nuclear reactor. It's not, it's not the science. Scientists will, will, will show you the math, but science is theory and engineering is, is, is reality, and they just can't do it. And there's no one who should be able to look you in the eye and say, don't worry, we've got it this time. Well, we've now. you're right, it's 50 years, and they, they weren't able to do it the first round, and they haven't been able to do it this round, and there's absolutely not one shred of evidence that they'll be able to do it in the next round. Okay.
0: okay. Thank you. Uh, let's go ahead and proceed to our next question.
1: The next question comes from Stephanie Cook of Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Please go ahead.
7: Hi. Thanks for this telephone uh, presentation. It's, it's very interesting. I just have a quick question for Ryan um, about the you, – you mentioned $2.2 billion in um, production tax credits. That was
4: for uh, the SCANA project? Um, that would be for the South Carolina, the canceled South Carolina project. So had they gone forward and started operating the Sumner the summer project would have, received, would have been eligible to receive $2.2 billion in nuclear production tax credits.
7: And is that both partners,
4: like sp- split on a prorated basis between both partners and over how many years? Um, I do not know the division between the partners, but I can certainly get you that information. So no, then. I know well, the division between... Well, no, yeah. the, the,
3: the, okay. the, the problem That's that the, the, they were trying to solve before they abandoned was this cr- problem of uh, tax credit doesn't do a co-op very good much good because they don't do taxes. They don't pay taxes. So oh, okay. they were trying to work, uh, convince the Congress to amend it so that they could sell the credits to somebody else.
5: Huh.
3: So, uh, as I, you know, again, that's sort of a 10,000-foot level that, of what was going on. But the problem right, was but that's that a they total, don't get the
7: But that's a total figure, Mark? I, I, that's the part I didn't yeah. understand. Yeah, okay, so that and that's a total over,
3: figure, but, but a, a little under half of it was going to lay wasted if the co-ops didn't find a deal, right. make a deal to be able to monetize it. That's I see. the way I, I see. understand
7: it. And do you, do you know what? over how many years they spread those credits? I never really got to grips
5: with yeah, that part it was a, of it. Yeah, sorry, it's, a, it, it's an eight-year program, so, the, so each reactor eight could take advantage of them for eight years.
3: Well, that, right. that, that raises a point that I want to alert the folks on the phone to. So uh, FCE&G has come forward and said, look, we want to spread our, 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 our sunken, useless costs over 60 years.
7: 60 years, right.
3: 60 years. Now, they were going to use a financial life of 15 years, right? Reactors get depreciated quickly over 15 years. If you spread this cost over 60 years, they basically want to retire right. on the backs of the ratepayers and do nothing for, 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 for 60 years. That's a ridiculous recovery period. Peter may recall when we recovered abandoned costs in the 80s, we actually shortened the period, but at least go 15, which is the financial life that they were going to use for reporting. The 60 years, is just ridiculous. It just stretches out, you know, they earn income on every year and they're only depreciating less than 2% per year. So, you know, in, 20, in 30 years, they're still, you're still paying full income on almost half the sunk and, and, and useless costs. It's a ridiculous proposal. So you need to be really careful to look at what these guys are now saying about how to uh try and get out from under this this, this humongous mistake.
7: Excuse me, I don't know if I'm still on, but Mark, they said in the transcript uh, on Monday that uh that 60 years was justified because that would have been what the period they would have amortized the project over.
3: Well, the, I I I I can everyone who I've seen has used a 15-year cost recovery for nuclear right, reactors. Right. They use 15 years for uh uh for everything else. So, um uh it just doesn't make any sense to come in and, and spread it out over 60 years um right. as i said i'd like to spread it shorter but 15 is, is 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 sort of the the standard practice in the in the industry these days one difference between this is peter bradford between
2: the way uh canceled plant costs tended to be handled uh in the last round of nuclear construction what and the way these new laws in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida work, is that they actually permit the company to continue to earn profit on the expenditures, even though the plant wasn't finished. The more typical practice back in the 1980s was to allow recovery of the money actually spent, but not to permit
3: a profit on it. Yeah. So, so there will be three issues that would make, can make a huge difference. One is that cost recovery period. You shorten that cost recovery period, you cut the, the, the income in half. Um, uh, a second one will be this question of what was prudent and imprudent. And there's going to be a battle since at least for a year it was imprudent to keep going forward and none of these commissions approved the spending. And the third is the last point that Peter raised about what is a, 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 what the, is should there be or there will be, given the laws, a return on equity. How should it be? How big should it be? So you can go from what the stream of income that, that Scanner would like to get and take those three issues, resolve them in a different way at the PUC, and you can cut that stream of income down by seven-eighths. There's a lot of money at stake for for ratepayers in South Carolina. It's really, really important. And if you think the nuclear construction part is mind-numbing, wait until you get into the financial cost recovery part, which is about what which is what we're about to enter into. Great. And uh, we're just going
0: to move along to see if we have any other questions today. I know some reporters joined a little late, so I'm going to bring back on the operator to remind us how. Uh, members of the media can ask a question.
1: Sure. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star than one on your touchdown phone. To remove yourself from the queue, you can press star than two. Again, it is star than one to ask a question. Thank you.
0: And, uh, again, for those who uh, maybe missed some of the uh, earlier remarks, um, if you do need to connect with any of the speakers you're hearing from uh, following the call today, you can contact Max Carlin at 703-276-3255. Again, that's 703-276-3255. Although we do encourage you to uh, take advantage of having everyone... uh, having all of our experts here for quotes uh, in one place at one time. So, operator, why don't we go
1: to our next question, please? Sure. That comes from Shanna Adcox with the Associated Press. Please go ahead.
4: Hey, um, this is Sean Adcox in South Carolina, and obviously I'm in the middle of dealing with all this. How many other states beyond South Carolina had that pay-as-you-go allowed, basically the Baseload Review Act that we have in South Carolina?
2: Right. It's actually pay-as-you-don't-go um, no. at this right. point. But even even under the intended formulation, it, it, the standard pay-as-you-go in this industry for the first century of its existence was that the customers paid for the plant once it was actually providing service to them. Um, uh, the idea that you're paying as you go by paying in advance would suggest that Customers should pay in advance to build their grocery stores, their gas stations, uh, and then pay again for the product once it's serving them. It just isn't pay-as-you-go. Uh, that said, states that have passed laws like this uh, in the last – most of them did it in 2006, 2007. And it was in mostly in the southeast, uh, so South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida – Mississippi, um, I'm not sure about all of it, Louisiana. Yeah. Well, Virginia, Virginia's passed a uh, variation of it, but
3: not very, very. Available. So, but, and the, the interesting thing is that, so, um, construction began in South Carolina in Georgia, uh, uh, and Georgia, uh, and there's advanced cost for a coal plant in Mississippi, which has recently been, the PUC told them to quit. Uh there was no construction in florida um there was no construction in North Carolina. The deal wasn't sweet enough um so that uh at one level um, huge expense in a couple of places but at the in another level, the reaction against this kind of stuff has confined the the harm to only three states now we fought legislation like this in a bunch of other places. They would have loved to get it in lots of places. They only got in a couple, three places, and it has gone very badly wherever they got advanced cost recovery. Uh, Mark's Mar- okay, absolutely you said right,
2: but I would add North Florida to that, where Levy County was canceled after a billion dollars were,
3: were spent on it. Oh, that was site preparation. Yep, you're absolutely right. Okay. All right,
0: operator, why don't we move to our next question?
1: Sure, and that is from Peter Malone with Utility Dive. Please go ahead.
8: Hi there. This is Peter Maloney. Thanks for the call. Um, Cooper and Bradford, maybe you could walk me through this. I was looking through these regulatory filings, and it seems to me they want to just stretch out the yeah. payments to rate to sort of soften the blow to, to stretch them out for, and of course they'll be retired, for 60 years. Yeah. but. I don't quite get your point about how they're earning money on this. thing. Well,
3: the, the, every year those money sits on the books, they collect, they want a full rate of return, 10 plus percent on it. So they're earning on income on those money? sunk costs. Those sunk costs are on the books, right? Um, they will now be depreciated over 60 years. They earn a full rate, they want a full rate of return for whatever is undepreciated. Huh. So they want to, as so Peter said yeah. the last time, they were not allowed to earn. This time the law has left them. So they will earn uh, be earning in the 60th year 10% of the undepreciated capital investment.
8: Because the capital expense is considered a regulatory asset.
3: It's, It's an asset. It's going to be depreciated over six years. That's what we're about to fight about. If you spread it over six years, yes, you make the bite a little bit smaller in the front end, but you also extend it out incredibly long in the back end. So rate payers have to make a decision about, you know, do they want to pay a, a lot today or a humongous amount over 60 years? I mean, and the the, the claim for a 60-year cost recovery period on every – go through their books. They don't have one asset on the books that they recover and certainly not generation, over 60 years. It's a 15-year life. That's the number people use. So I would argue that we need to do three things. We need to shorten the period so we're not – so we're not, they're not clipping coupons for 45 years too long. We need to claw back the imprudent expenses, certainly over the last year when Toshiba Westinghouse did not have a credible plan. And we can also have a good, lively debate about what, what the rate of profit should be on, on unused and, and uh, uh, wasted costs. Um, we don't usually reward people for that.
8: And it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If, if you say you have to pay it back more quickly, it's going to hurt ratepayers more,
3: right? Well, it, 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 it raises the bills in the short term, but yeah. it then takes the, next, the last 45 years, and you, you're not paying them for an extra 45 years. So the, nice. the notion that let the future generation bear the burden of that problem, so uh, the vast majority of people who will be paying that bill in, in, in year 59 – weren't even born when they made this mistake. So, the, so the,
8: this
3: is, yeah. the, there is a trade-off here, but I, I would also argue it needs to be part of a, uh, the, 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 the review for cost recovery needs to be part of a complete package that looks at it. For instance, one of the things you might do, for example, you go after Toshiba for every penny you possibly can. Toshiba knows they have exposure. That's why they were offering to make these contributions, right? Sure. And when you get that contribution, you apply it on day one. You dem- immediately write that off the books. So the company doesn't earn any profit on it. The amount of, of, of uh, assets that are undepreciated is dramatically reduced in the first year. Now maybe they thought of that and maybe they didn't, but that's one uh, approach. But we have to make sure they fight as hard as they can to get every penny back from Toshiba. And Toshiba's actually made it pretty clear how much they're willing to pay to end their, their, their legal obligations. So there are a variety of ways that you can make sure that ratepayers don't pay too much in the beginning and ratepayers who who weren't even born aren't still paying for it in 50 years
8: so for SCE and G it looks like the amount on the books would be roughly we'll call it 5 billion dollars 4.9 is
3: thinking? the number i've seen
8: um right 4.9
3: and some people still so, but remember Toshiba offered 2.1 almost $2.2 billion to liquidate right. their obligations. Well, yeah. let's sue that's them exactly. for that. Yeah. If I get that $2.2 billion, I want to subtract that from, from the total on day one.
8: That right. They say they're going to flow that back to the, uh, actually I think it's $700 as is their share after taxes, et cetera. They're going to flow that back to ratepayers.
3: I want it on day back. one. I don't want it spread out, right? I want well, that's the, whole the other question out. is
8: like just how are they going to spread it out as they get it and will they get it? We
3: we there's there's a host of questions but I, as I say the, I look at as I look at the the issues that are on the table the clawback the recovery period and the rate of rate of return right the difference between what they the extreme that they seem to want and I, you will see what they actually write when they file their testimony and what I want is a factor of eight to one. I can I can reduce the burden by 7 eighths if I convince the commission to do all the things that I'm sure my lawyer is going to say are illegal and we'll fight about that too. So, you know, you take that 4.9 billion and you know, we're still going to be fighting about 3 or 4 billion. Aren't which is a pretty lot of well money
8: protected in South by the Yeah, aren't they pretty well protected by the BLRA? So, uh, a if you read defend. the
3: BLRA, the BLRA said, you know, things can't be imprudent. Right. And obviously, we argued in—I argued in 2012 that they shouldn't go forward. They've been approving things without really rigorous prudence review. Um, my lawyer tells me there are other statutes that may trump it, but at one, you know, it's quite clear that from the middle of last year, they did not have a credible plan, a work plan, a schedule, and a cost. They were asked for it by the, their, their, their contracted parties, and they couldn't deliver it. That makes for a fairly significant sum of money. One analyst put it at one point5 billion. That's a fairly significant sum, and if you if you do proportionate in Georgia, it's probably two point five. That's a significant sum of money that ought to be subject to a very, very rigorous prudence review because of the obvious failure of the contracting party to be able to execute the terms of its contract, mm-hmm. which they're trying to bribe people to let him off the all So, yeah, well, if I can, right.
8: The, 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 the final question for me, then, is do you see spillover with Vogel? Do you think this will affect – I mean, we've seen Stan Wise saying that, oh, it's a very different situation. Fanning seems to be pushing forward. Do you see them going forward with this? Well, look, the,
3: obviously the, 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 one of the key things here was the SC – the uh, scanner was way too small to build a big project like this. If you ask managers how big a single project be, should be compared to your, your market cap, you'll find that, that the sum of two and three were ten times too big. So Southern has more co- capability. But they've now put on the table a number that is breathtaking. Right? We're looking at 25 to $27 billion. Now, um, even in Georgia, even with a big utility, that gives policymakers pause. The power coming out of that reactor, even with these subsidies, is going to be grossly overpriced. Even with the subsidies, I believe, you know, there's a lower cost alternative. So I think there will be a tremendous amount of pressure on um, Southern and Georgia to either – insulate rate pairs from rate shock and future prices or make them give it up the staff has actually said they now believe it's uneconomic. Okay. So georgia's is still in play i think
0: all right thank you great questions and uh we are getting ready to get into the follow-up questions but i wanted to just bring on the operator one more time uh to explain how members of the media can ask a question just in case Uh, folks uh, who haven't asked a question yet wanted to ask an original question, and then we'll get into our follow-ups. Operator?
1: Once again, if you would like to ask a question, you may press star then 1 on your touchtone phone. To remove yourself from the queue, you can press star then 2. Again, it is star 1 to ask a question.
0: Okay. Thank you. Um, All right. Let's see. Let's give one second. Okay. Let's go ahead to our first follow-up.
1: And that is from Tom Henry with Toledo Blade. Please go ahead.
6: Uh, just real quickly, uh, for Ryan. Um, a few years ago I became um, familiar with taxpayers for common sense and saw that they had uh uh tallied the subsidies estimate, estimated at uh I may have these backwards but I thought I thought it was eighty billion for nuclear and fifty billion for for the coal-fired uh, electricity industry. I wanted just to see if those figures have been updated, because I know that was several years ago.
4: Um, in general, we do update our, um, our figures on sector, subsidies. We do it through two vehicles. One is the Green Scissors database, which is online and is updated annually. So depending on when you looked at that, um, they would be, they are delineated and you can get to those aggregate numbers. So it, it just depends on when you looked at it. The likely answer is yes, we have updated it. So I'm happy to um, follow up with you on that. Um, and while, while I have the floor, I want you,
6: you to just... You, yep, you don't know nuclear is offhand, right? right now, do you? The uh, the,
4: total, the total... Of, total amount of subsidies for the nuclear industry today? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have the aggregate number off the top of my head now. Okay. But I, I did check a couple things from the previous question I got, and it is, so the recovery period on the nuclear production tax credit is an eight-year period, and while the bill passed the House that would allow um, municipalities and and public yeah. utilities to share that uh, it hasn't as we know it hasn't passed the Senate, but today the southern company owns about forty five percent of that project so that would have been the percentage that they would have been entitled to if there is no change in law mm-hmm. okay, okay, and the, it, company. It,
6: okay and then the, the the last question I guess is what um, what kind of um, spillover effect do you expect the uh, uh, these um, these two uh um projects that have been canceled to have on Ohio and the efforts that First Energy is you know trying to do for bailout, out uh, uh bailing out uh davis Bessie and the Perry nuclear plant uh, the bill has been stuck in committee uh hasn't been moving i know the the NEI is interested in trying to uh get uh, get it moving um uh, Matt Wald talked to me the other day about that, but uh, uh, I'm just wondering, given you know, given this major development, what effect do you see it having on Ohio? Uh,
4: i mean, under-
7: go
4: ahead. Um, I was going to say, and Tim, this is pure speculation, but I would say I think that to the extent that we see an an attempt to get a federal bailout for South Carolina, and we, we don't know exactly what we will see. Um, I think the combination of the Senate, the Senate delegations from South Carolina and Ohio would be would be a very powerful combination. So it might be helpful to Ohio, but again, at the same time, you know, if it comes down to one or the other, um, I think that the South Carolina Senate delegation has a leg up.
2: <laughs> these yeah, these tend is- always to be debates over alleged costs versus alleged benefits. And the industry's credibility just took a substantial hit because they've been arguing that the benefits to the customers long-term from South Carolina plants would far outweigh the costs. Now, apparently, the customers are going to see only the costs. The arguments in Ohio are different in the sense that the number of years of remaining plant life aren't uh, uh, aren't as large, there aren't construction risks involved but they're the same in terms of what methodology you should use to test the alleged benefits of nuclear against the benefits of other energy sources that could provide the same needs and many of the same benefits in the same time period so do you just take the industry's word for it which is the mistake south carolina made and ohio has come close to making it a couple of times or do you actually run competitive bidding processes to test who will do what for you in what time frame in which case the nuclear plants may well lose
6: well is there any way it would help the ohio bailout bill or do you feel that like like you said the industry just took a credibility uh, hit is, is something that could you know yeah
2: i mean the industry put, put a argument,
6: nail in the coffin here in ohio yeah
2: the industry's argument is fundamentally trust us mm-hmm. and we'll bring home the bacon for the customers anyone predisposed to believe or to promote that argument uh is hoping that their customers and uh The legislators aren't paying any attention To what's happened in South Carolina Ryan may be right that there's a potential Alliance somehow uh, Among the States Betrayed by nuclear expectations uh, And it wouldn't just be South Carolina and Ohio Um, Mm -hmm. uh, She's she's Well positioned to assess that Um, But as far as Credibility Of the Industry uh, spokesman in Ohio and in Pennsylvania and in Connecticut, it has to be lower in light of the headlines from South Carolina than it was a month ago. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: All right. Thanks. Uh, let's move ahead to our second follow-up question, please, operator.
1: Sure. It's from Stephanie Cook with Nuclear Intelligence Weekly. Please go ahead.
7: Uh, yeah, thanks, Mark. Can you just explain where you get the twenty-five billion dollar figure? I'm I'm well, looking that one's at well, in the, the
3: newspaper today. Twenty-five to twenty-seven is right,
7: right. Well, I'm looking at the at the estimated total capital cost from their presentation yesterday, their second quarter presentation, and I'll take the high figure is seven point four, and that includes Quip. Which I'm confused about because I thought Quip was essentially financing costs. Oh, no, but anyway, no, no. Well, that's I'm,
3: I'm reading the, I'm reading press accounts that put it at 25 to 27 now. Let's right,
7: right. Well, clear. 7.4 and just capital costs for their 45.7 would would suggest a figure of 16 to 17 billion.
3: Um, and, but, yeah, okay. So here's the key: is you, you you have you have to separate out overnight costs and all-in costs, okay? And right. people tend to mix those. The 25 to 27 is the all-in cost. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and I was looking at overnight about about 18 or 19, and that, that may be against the, t- the 29. So, so the overnight cost is what people tend to use to try and make a comparison yeah. between alternatives. Right. So, yeah, if the overnight costs are 17 on the low side and 18-plus on the high side, um, right. that's about right. 25 to 27 is all in cost. So, the okay. interesting thing is if, if if you take seventeen or eighteen billion as the mm-hmm. overnight costs, you have a cost of uh, if we use eighteen since nuclear is always on the uh, high side you, you you have a a cost per kilowatt of about over eight thousand uh-huh. dollars uh um, you can buy Wind and solar today for $1,000, $1,500. Uh, tie it up to batteries, which raises its load factor uh, uh, to well above 50%, and maybe it's, maybe it's 1500 So that's, you know, that's less a, a, a fifth of the co- overnight cost. Right, right. That's um,
7: there, what, uh,
3: you know, that's, that, that's what they're leaning against. So,
7: so here, go ahead. Right, right, right. I told, I, I totally understand. I, I guess what I'm getting at here, two things. First of all, I don't understand under what law that they can assume the uh, Westinghouse. Yet yeah, last week, the judge and the DOE signed off on them assuming all these contracts from Westinghouse, more than a thousand, and that includes paying off whatever was owed these contractors at the time the bankruptcy was filed, which isn't like a ton of money, but there wasn't a. Total sum but anyway there's that and then on this presentation they gave to investors yesterday they have the total no-go cancellation cost estimate of 6.3 billion their total capital costs estimated capital costs are between six. seven and seven point4 with estimated net additional capital costs of one to 1.7 which is clearly higher than 6.3 yet they have gone ahead and assumed all these contracts they have assumed taking over the, the EPC contract, and uh, they have not made a decision whether to keep going with this or not going And well, I don't understand. It seems like they're doing things in a slightly reverse well, order. If, if, they well,
3: you know, Westinghouse and Toshiba made it clear they were getting out of the business. And right. so Southern Company was big enough to step in, and basically they bought out Westinghouse. They bought out all those contracts. Now, those contracts are not... Uh, uh, those contracts can be terminated. They don't have mm-hmm. to fulfill those contracts. That mm-hmm. is, because Tosh- the problem Toshiba had was Toshiba was looking at these contracts in which they had given certain guarantees to, to the companies they were providing services to, and they were mm-hmm. liable for those guarantees. Okay. They decided, and they picked a number which was $6 billion mm-hmm. across these two projects, they decided that they could live with six billion dollars. They they mm-hmm. they wanted to limit their future liability to six billion dollars. That's a lot of money. Again, mm-hmm. two contracts that are you know thirty five or thirty billion of cost. So they once Toshiba chances the contracts to um, Southern Company, though the Southern Company is not liable beyond what they pay for on a pay-as-you-go basis, plus some oh, okay. wind-down. They have obviously got some wind-down. That's where the difference, and that's why these numbers... I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah no, ask yourself, why would Toshiba make a $3.6 billion quote contribution to Southern Company?
7: Right. Start writing
3: checks the wrong way. Right. And that is, that is to bribe them to take over those contracts and uh, end Toshiba's future downside risk. Oh. That's what Toshiba did. I mean, these guys were getting ready to sell one of the, the, the premier chip businesses in the world for $20 billion to the Chinese, the Japanese government. Hang
7: on, you're in. saying – sorry, Mark, you're saying that all of those subcontracts at Westinghouse, I mean, people that were supplying coffee and people that were supplying rebar, whatever they were supplying – Those all had Toshiba's guarantee on it. Toshiba Toshiba was
3: standing behind that. No, Toshiba was standing behind a delivered price.
7: And they
3: could no longer tolerate the risk of the the cost overruns. And they have put $6 billion on the table to two U.S. utilities and said, take this money and let us off the hook. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to buy. And that Mm -hmm. means to me that if Vogel quits tomorrow they don't have to pay people a penny in the future. Mhm. They have no li- there's nobody that they are that that they are liable to, you know, when when they lay off the 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 the, the uh the welders, yeah. which was a big deal apparently, um mm-hmm. those welders don't have any claim on West, on on Southern Company.
7: Although although a lawyer for one of the creditors that got lucky and got the contract t- taken over by um Southern, he said they had to pay within five days, like this week, of, of any outstanding amount. Outstanding amount, but,
3: amounts. but Futurum, yeah. that, 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 that's the difference, is that Southern, Toshiba had this problem of having promised that they were going to deliver something to Southern and Scanner mm-hmm. that they couldn't deliver and there were, there were damages in there that they couldn't tolerate. Mm-hmm. And so they tried to negotiate a deal, in, and think about Scanner, they said, we'll give you $2.168 billion whether or not you keep going just let us what, off
7: the hook. what what do you give the odds for, for Toshiba actually paying the money for these these uh, paying the money in October that they owe under they're these they
3: you know, Toshiba I, they have made this deal to to liquidate okay. their liability
7: mm-hmm.
3: and I think they're going to they're going to send those checks okay because they don't want to get sued for the, if they violate the contracts that liquidate their liability, they got going to re-incur re, re, re the whole liability. Right. That's what they wanted to get out of. So, $6 billion, that eats a big part of their chip business.
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right, folks, this is this is, uh, Mac and uh, going, I man. hate to interrupt this really great conversation that's going on, but we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, thank you, all of those who participated and listened in and asked questions. Uh, if you have you know, a need for anything, whether it be materials or want to connect with a speaker following this call, just contact Max Carlin, 703-276-3255, 703 276 There will be a streaming audio replay of the news event later today online. It's going to be posted at nears.org. Um, and it's also going to be linked on some of the press materials. So you've been listening to a news conference sponsored by the Nuclear Information and
7: Resource Service, (NIERS). We thank you for joining us, and that concludes today's news event.